0: It's Tuesday, the 17th of November, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, and I'll be your moderator today. Now, if this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're in store for for the better part of the next hour is a conversation in which three Hoover Institution Senior Fellows, Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offer their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these complicated times. Let's meet the three Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John, from what I presume is a rainy Palo Alto today.
1: It is uh, Groundhog Day number, what is it, 37 in rainy Palo Alto. (laughs)
0: Okay, hang in there, my friend. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil is, of course, a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil.
2: Good to be with you. There's snow on the ground, winter is here, uh, and I have my nice Fair Isle tank top, which, uh, which I'm hoping will make you all think of my alma mater, Oxford University, where this used to be standard wear for Oxford dons.
0: Very good. Our third good fellow joining us last, but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is also the author of the New York Times bestselling Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R.
3: Hi, Bill. Good to be with you. It's good to see you, Neil. Good to see you, John.
0: Okay, gentlemen, we're going to uh, start today talking about what brought us all together in the first place, and that is the pandemic. Um, And in getting ready for this show, I actually went and did a little homework and I stumbled across a most interesting column in the Boston Globe from April of this year, the headline of which is the second wave of coronavirus. In that column, you'll find these words, quote, expect a second wave. As you read along, the author of this column points to history, the great influence of 1918 to 1919. He, the author, notes that the first wave of influenza struck in March of that year, the second wave in October and November. And he goes on to point out that that's when the second wave could strike. Neil Ferguson, that's your column. So congratulations. I guess you called
2: it. Well, thanks, Bill. Although, in fact, the second wave in the United States came earlier than that ah. uh, in the summer. Uh, if you remember, and we talked about it on this show, that the United States decided to do what uh, my esteemed colleague John called the dumb reopening uh, to try and get back to normal uh, before the virus was in any way under control. And predictably, that led to uh, new uh cases, new hospitalizations, and unfortunately new deaths Uh, back in the summer months, those were heavily concentrated in sunbelt states. And it probably was because that's the part of America where it's too hot to go outside in summer. So there was a big increase in indoor activity in restaurants Mm -hmm. and elsewhere. This this is actually the third wave that we're in right now in the United States. Uh, And that is again, regionally quite specific. It's an awful lot worse in the Midwest, uh, and the West than it is in the in the Northeast, uh, and indeed you can see uh, the, this third wave coming to parts of the country that really had a pretty mild experience up until now, relatively thinly populated states like oh I don't know say Montana. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's really a, a tale of three waves. But the one thing that I I was right about uh, from the outset, and I remember writing it earlier than April was that pandemics are multi-wave events and you should not think of this, I remember saying this again and again, as just one curve that you have to flatten. All the great pandemics have come in multiple waves. Uh, One thing to add, it it is a second wave in Europe. Now, back in the summer, the Europeans were looking down their noses slightly at uh, the dumb reopening Americans, but it turned out that the Europeans could be dumb too. Uh, What they did uh, was to go back to pretty much normal in many colleges. And so you got a great surge of infections in college towns. Uh, And now in fact, you see in, in countries like Italy and Spain, Uh, They've had almost as bad an experience in terms not just of cases, but of mortality as they had back in the spring. So COVID-19 is doing what influenza did in 1918-19 and influenza did in 1957-58. It's coming in waves. And I don't know whether this third wave is going to be quite as bad in terms of mortality as the first American wave, Uh, but it could get very bad indeed. Just looking at the current trends in hospitalizations, for example, I must say I'm quite concerned. And uh, one last point, Thanksgiving couldn't be worse timed. Uh, We're actually going to have a kind of American version of what the Chinese had with their lunar new year back in January when Wuhan and Hubei province uh, had mass super spreader events. I'm afraid Thanksgiving is going to make matters much worse in the US in the coming weeks.
0: So John and Neil, um, Neil uh, John and H.R. Neil just led me in my next question, which is the third wave is, with the third wave, should we wave goodbye to Thanksgiving? Should we wave goodbye to well, Christmas? Should we wave goodbye to holidays? Should we wave goodbye to going inside to church services, to opening up businesses? Or are we going to wave goodbye to such basic freedoms as stepping outside? I say that here in California, where our intrepid governor, when he's not going to three-star Michelin restaurants in Napa, uh, suggests we might have a curfew. So do we wave goodbye to all of this?
1: Well, let me jump in. Uh, Yes, in a sense. Uh, Neil was right about one of the lessons of history. In the past, they have come as waves. They don't have to come out as waves. Uh, They come as waves because when they pass, then people stop being so careful uh, or it goes and hides out in its animal redoubt and people don't really do what they did. I mean, smallpox went away because we really took the effort when it was very small to get rid of it completely. We could have done that, we didn't do it. The other difference of now in history, which Neil, I think pointed out in March, uh, in 1918, nobody thought of shutting down the economy. Okay. <laughs> it came in waves, but the economy went going. This is unique in its unique since perhaps uh, 1350, in its cratering of the economy, uh, the response of locking down the economy. Uh, is something that uh, um, Europe did and, and looked down their nose at us for not doing as, as wisely and, and look what it bought them. <laughs> and nothing, they're right back to where we are now as well. So one of the big questions going forward is, are we going to go back to locking down the economy? I, I hope what, the, you know, what we've learned about this disease, it does not spread in businesses. It spreads socially. It spreads when people are together inside for long periods of time Talking loudly, this is the disease of parties. It isn't the disease of business. Now it's a paradox of our government that we have a Chinese ability to shut down businesses and we are supremely libertarian when it comes to people's individual affairs because we we know where has this thing spread? Um, Choirs, weddings, funerals, Thanksgivings and so forth. Uh, Our governments don't have the ability, the will, our people won't put up with it. But um, you know, if you wanna slow this thing down, uh, what you have to do is slow down the social interactions and not slow down the businesses because businesses are doing a pretty good job of it. So uh, we'll, we'll talk much more about, about how it's possibly slowing but, but I think you put your finger on it. Uh, Thanksgiving is, uh, I think Neil sent around a, a beautiful number which I, uh, I'm gonna steal from him that United Airlines has already scheduled 1,700 more flights for Thanksgiving weekend. I think we saw over the summer, our beloved scientists deciding that, well, it's really important to social resistance except for certain protests. And if you were on the left, you thought it was important to go out and protest um, uh, for social justice. If you were on the right, you thought it was important to go out and and go to Trump rallies. And then the whole thing fell apart. Everybody decided. Well, if it's only important, and I think I, we're now at, at the 1918 attitude—is what? What the heck? Right. And that, that may be the attitude for the Thanksgiving of oh, what the heck? Uh, right.
0: Well, HR, this is not the army, and civilians are not good at taking orders. So, how are you going to have the government modify, change people's behavior, especially? when, as John mentioned, we see double standards. On the one hand, we don't allow some activities. On the other hand, we allow other activities going that clearly look like spreader events. And I mentioned the governor in the, in the lead up to this, not a, not a cheap shot necessarily. Here's the governor of California who is giving a press conference saying people should not travel. People should not be indoors in large congregations. And then what a couple of hours later, he's in a car going to Napa where he's eating in a very expensive restaurant at a table for 12. He's flouting his own guidelines. Why will people go along with their suggested to some elected leaders that the elected leaders don't play
3: by the same rules. Well, I mean, these are important points. I mean, I do think that what's most important is to send a simple, clear message to Americans to inform us really and we do know now you know, the importance of not being in big social gatherings the importance of of, of wearing a mask uh, the importance of if you're exposed you know to to the virus to you know to to uh, to quarantine yourself and especially to stay away from those who are vulnerable I mean so I, I think it's important for us to you know to to send that simple clear message to everybody and, and, and but then also as you mentioned to lead by example right I think this is the area that we've had the, the greatest Friction and and have proven really not very adept at learning lessons. Uh, is is the is the mechanisms that we put in place to stop the spread of the disease, but without without incurring you know additional health costs or economic costs unnecessary, I should say, additional health costs or or economic costs. I think in other areas we have adapted though, Bill. Like I, I think that you know if you if you look at how we've now can organize a much more effective your biomedical response to the disease with the therapies and also with with hospitals understanding better how to organize treatment and to affect the treatment of, of the of the disease. Uh, we have also recovered obviously from the, the, the big gap in, in in personal protective equipment, for example. So so we have the supplies that are necessary. Uh, we learned kind of the hard way through practice, you know, that ventilators really are can be a disadvantage to, to treatment and can cause more more deaths uh, in in some cases. Uh, and and so the, the the treatment of it, I think we've responded to the logistics part of it and the supply part of it. We responded to, but the mechanisms that we take that we put in place to to to, to limit the spread of it, we've not been effective there. And you know what I worry about that nobody's talking about, Bill, is the wear and tear, or the strain. On, on uh, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, first responders, right? And you know, they've got to be exhausted at this point. And so, you know, at the beginning of this disease, we we're worried about getting the right stuff to the right place. Uh, but I think now we have to worry about uh, about uh, the people uh, who we've relied on so heavily, the essential workers as well. But I think in in the healthcare sector, you know, this is in many ways, I mean, like a sustained you know combat experience for them right and with all the the emotional stress of seeing people suffer seeing people who who die without the benefit of being able to grieve with their their loved ones i mean there's a lot of psychological strain i think we ought to be worried about
1: i uh, I, I i think we're all punting on the hard question so we have us clear two super spreader events coming up national super spreader events thanksgiving and christmas It is within the government's limited capacity. They could just shut down the airlines for the week of Thanksgiving. You know, they shut it down the week after 9-11. You know, the total GDP loss will not be tremendous. Heck, they know how to print money if that's the issue. Uh, They could say, we're shutting down Thanksgiving. Um, They could say, uh, you know, this this is not a problem of business. So it's not about lost GDP and employment. It's a problem of parties. They could say, you shall not have parties and, and the cops will be wandering around. And if, if, you, if we can see that you have 20 people in your house, we're going to knock on the door. We're going to shut down Airbnb for Thanksgiving. Uh, one of the things that's been going on, the government knows how to shut down bars because they're places of business. So what do people do? They're having house parties. We can shut down the house parties. Now, this recoils at, at all of our libertarian instincts but it is certainly within the capacity of the government to do. And and as you said, just say, Thanksgiving's canceled. You do not go, everybody assemble Thanksgiving. Use Zoom, you know, say hi to your family, Zoom, this Thanksgiving is canceled. Our politicians don't want even to say that. Now, I'm asking this as a question to my my good fellow good fellows. I'm as uncomfortable saying that as I'm sure you are, but, uh, If if we have a super spreader coming up, if that's coming up that's going to send the hospitals into into a frenzy, Uh, you know, why do we not clamp down on the social part, which is, why does our government not do what it can to clamp down on the social part, which is where this thing spreads?
2: Yeah, Neil, why not? Well, if you look at uh, a good measure of our current vulnerability, uh, it's uh, hospitalization. Uh, and actually we're, we're at record levels of hospitalization. We've ac- ac- actually exceeded the peak in the first uh, wave. Uh, uh, in the intensive care units in some states, uh, capacity is very, very nearly being reached in North Dakota. They're at 96 percent, Oklahoma 94 percent, Wisconsin 91 percent. So, in fact, the the situation's already parlous in some of these states, even without Thanksgiving. Now, I don't actually expect uh, Thanksgiving to be cancelled, uh, nor do I expect that the government to to close down the airlines, certainly not the outgoing Uh, Trump administration, which has, uh, as far as the president's uh, been concerned, uh, resisted most uh, of the measures that might earlier on have uh, limited the spread of the disease, leaving it to states and uh, and, and local uh, authorities. Now, I think some states are reluctantly now having to introduce measures uh, which they should have introduced some weeks ago, we were all distracted by the election, remember? And so this third wave kind of snuck up on Americans while they were busy uh, arguing about the electoral college and, uh, and blue waves. So I think it's inevitable that some states are going to have to introduce new social distancing measures in the very near future, regardless of Thanksgiving. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there probably is a way of doing Thanksgiving safely, uh, one of the things that we've consistently got wrong uh, this year uh, is that we've used a bro- uh, not a broadsword, but a mallet when we needed to use a rapier. Uh, that there are ways of having uh, a limited social life uh, that doesn't lead to super spread a disaster. Uh, So for example, I I certainly intend to celebrate Thanksgiving with family members, but a very small number of them, uh, the ones that I I live with. Uh, And I'm certainly not going to go on uh, a large journey uh, to reunite myself with a larger extended kinship group. So I think we need to do Thanksgiving, but light or shrunk Uh, rather than canceling it altogether. On the airlines, actually they've been doing a quite good job of, uh, of making travel safer. Uh, and it's not that the virus spreads on planes very much, at least it doesn't appear to. There aren't many studies that suggest that. Uh, the trouble is actually in large indoor gatherings. So I think there's a way of doing this, uh, which is to do, do a smart Thanksgiving, uh, scale it back, uh, make sure that you're not seeing a whole bunch of people you don't see normally, and accept that uh, you know, some of the more distant relatives are just going to have to zoom it in. That, that, that would be the way they do it in Taiwan, That would be the way they do it in South Korea. The countries that have been smart about this didn't do lockdowns and they didn't completely annihilate social life. But what they did was to to respond to the peculiarities of the new virus and its low dispersion factor uh, using testing and contact tracing and isolation uh, to make the super spreader events stop. So I do think you could have Thanksgiving without super spreader events, but it'll take well, it'll need us to be a lot smarter than we have been over the last 11 months.
1: And let me clarify, I was, I was being deliberately outrageous. Uh, the, the airline was not a suggestion because the airlines are dangerous. It's just a way of saying, don't travel and assemble a large group. Uh, so the challenge for our authorities <clears throat> is how do we have Thanksgiving light, Thanksgiving small, Thanksgiving in your nuclear family where you zoom into grandma. Uh, and I think the, the serious answer is um, what you said, uh, I'm gonna channel HR for a little minute. Um, We need to have a social norm that the the same reason, you know, uh, we we need, it has has to be understood. This is what we're all doing. To some extent, I don't want to send the cops to people but maybe the neighbors, you know, if we're all in this together and if if you see your neighbors having a huge, you know maybe you should go be that nosy neighbor who says, cut it out. Um, And I want to put in one last, uh, we could have an easy, if only the FDA had let us have the paper strip tests that cost five bucks and you test, yeah, have it at home, we could have Thanksgiving. We could just say, everybody take a test on the way in, and if five minutes later you're sick, you're going home. Uh, unfortunately, that I think the chance to do that has passed. One of many uh, chances the uh, that our current government's had to, to do this. And then the guidelines have to be simple. Uh, if you actually try to read the guidelines in the state of California, we talked about this last week. It's a ridiculous level of complexity. So n- nice and simple. HR, uh,
2: I, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, people always forget that, that, that Thanksgiving happens in wartime. Uh, it happens uh, if you're active uh, frontline uh, duty uh, service personnel, but it's not your regular Thanksgiving. I'd love you just to talk a little bit about how, how you do Thanksgiving uh, in a foxhole.
3: <laughs> well, I'll that's it's, it's our, our military does a great job in bringing Thanksgiving to our servicemen and women when they're deployed uh, overseas. I mean, a Thanksgiving I remember fondly is in Western Nineveh Province in Iraq, when our, our regiment was operating across about twenty-two thousand square kilometer area. And uh, and uh, what what I did is, is I tried to make sure that I could see every soldier in in our in our five thousand five hundred uh, soldier regiment. And uh, and that was at some really far flung border posts where we had, you know, a scout section operating with Iraqi border police, for example. But we loaded up my helicopter with uh, with with uh, turkey and and uh, and all the you know all the sides and and flew out and, and made sure that everybody had a hot meal that day. Uh, it is it is a, it is a particularly important holiday for servicemen and women who are separated from family, because it's an opportunity for them to reflect on you know missing their family, but also. Uh, to 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 recognize that they're part of a of a military family and and that they share that meal together uh, oftentimes in in harm's way and so this tradition will be carried out across our armed forces across the world and and um, so it is a, it is a it is a holiday that has special meaning for me because of of so many opportunities to celebrate it with my fellow soldiers overseas. The gentleman,
0: Doctor Fauci is in the news today. I know that comes as a surprise because he rarely is on television or talking to reporters. <laughs> And uh, here's what Dr. Fauci said today. He said that you could expect doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And that's changed since we last met. Moderna is now in the uh, vaccine breakthrough mode as well. But Fauci said you could expect doses by uh, late December, early December, possibly. He didn't say how many, if it's a thousand, a hundred or a hundred thousand. But this does raise questions. I mean, I'd like the three of you to kick around. First of all, come the time when we do have vaccines to distribute, who gets priority? Second... How do we assess the priority? Is this HR like being in the army in World War II where you get points for service and valor and so forth? Thirdly, as these are two US concerns, Moderna and Pfizer, what is the distribution in the United States versus overseas? And finally, in terms of overseas distribution, what is the US's role versus the WHO, which we can all agree did a wonderful job with this to begin with. So I've just thrown a lot at you. So go ahead and discuss how do we get the vaccine off to a clean start and who gets it first?
1: But before we even, I think you're, you're jumping to how quickly do we get to nirvana. So can I offer some grumpy thoughts on the vaccine in general? I mean, it's, the vaccine was announced and, and everybody's out there like it's VJ day. At best, it's VE day because we've got a long winter to go through. Um, but this is a new technology of a vaccine that has never been used to create a human vaccine. We do not know how long the disease if the disease gives you immunity, or how long that immunity lasts, we don't know how long the immunity uh, will be conferred by the vaccine. We know, by definition, nothing about the long-term effects of this vaccine because no one's had it for a long term. And you got to think about the ethics of this. Um, we are intentionally going to do something to hundreds of millions of people. Uh, what effect, What rate? Somebody's going to die from the vaccine. What rate of damage from the vaccine? makes it acceptable to do in order, because you you're doing something to healthy people. Um, furthermore, I think the vaccine, but by sort of saying Nirvana is coming in the springtime, I think that's having an unfortunate effect on what we do now. Uh, economists call this intertemporal substitution. Uh, let me just give two examples. It would be, re- why is outside good and inside bad? Because outside has ultraviolet light and ventilation very possible to put ultraviolet light and ventilation into the indoors and make the indoors as safe as the outdoors. Uh, you need an incentive to do that. So if everybody's just, oh, well, it'll be over in the spring, then I don't even see that effort coming now, but an effort to adequately ventilate and ultraviolet light and make indoors a safe space, which takes time, effort, and money. If you all think that this that vaccine's gonna save you in the spring, you're much less likely to do that. Similarly, testing. I think I've mentioned testing is a good thing, a way of stopping it. Again, why invest in the tests? Why invest in getting the tests out? Why invest in this other technology for stopping the spread when we all know it's going to be over in the spring? So uh, I think that, um, I'm channeling Neil here. There are al- There's always bad news coming. We just don't know what it is. Uh, there are certainly stumbling blocks on the way to this vaccine uh, coming out. And, and putting all your eggs in that basket, I think, has a... Uh, A damaging effect on our ability to handle it uh, this winter.
2: John, you you may have been trying to channel me, but I'm going to go in exactly the opposite direction. You'll be much too grumpy about this. Good. This is uh, something that we should celebrate as a triumph for science, uh, a remarkable triumph uh, in the space of, of mere months Remember, the DNA sequencing happened only back in in January, uh, before year end. Two uh, different projects have come up with uh, with vaccines that, after uh, phase three controlled randomized trials, have more than ninety percent efficacy. The the news this week from Moderna uh, was especially sensational uh, because they're looking at efficacy close to ninety five percent, and out of this enormous uh, sample of of people who took the vaccine or took the placebo, uh, there really were uh, uh, only a handful of people on the vaccine who developed uh, symptoms. And of those that had severe symptoms, none of them had taken the vaccine. This is a remarkable success, a real triumph. Uh, for medical science. And it gets better than that because Moderna's uh, vaccine, unlike Pfizer's, uh, remains stable at between 36 to 46 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. It can basically be kept in a standard refrigerator for up to a month. Uh, It's gonna be distributed, I think, with great speed. So that actually Bill's question about who gets it first kind of is a Uh, non-question. The CEO of Moderna said this week that he thinks that every American should have access to the the vaccine by... By June of of next year, obviously the people who'll get it first will be the people most exposed. That's the healthcare workers that HR was rightly talking about just a moment ago. But um, I think it would be very wrong of us on this uh, on this uh, broadcast to be to be grumpy about the vaccines. And remember, there are other vaccines coming uh, not far behind. AstraZeneca, for example, uh, I, I suspect that before the end. Uh, of the year, there will be multiple vaccines that have uh, shown themselves to have high efficacy. And that means that it's not just the US population that's going to be uh, able to get vaccinated in the first half of next year. Uh, You know, there are estimates I've seen that suggest that you could get to something like 15% of the world's population by the end of next year. Remember, you don't need to get to 100% uh, for a couple of reasons. A, there are a bunch of people who've had COVID-19 who have therefore got immunity from having been infected. And B, because of this low dispersion factor that characterizes uh, the, the disease, the way the virus uh, spreads actually, you, you you can get to herd immunity uh, a rather lower percentage than uh, than with some other diseases. So I, I actually am incredibly optimistic about what this implies. I think we'll find ourselves by the middle of next year uh, getting back to normal far faster than seems. Uh, than seems possible now. The only way in which I kind of agree with you, John, is that psychologically uh, there's the disconnect between this very happy future that really isn't that far away and the coming impending months, which are going to be very, very dark indeed uh, for reasons we've already discussed.
3: I, say, I, I, agree, I agree with uh, with Neil on, on this and, and to just address John's points. I am very optimistic about it because I think that in many ways, what we saw as the as the real deficiencies in in mobilizing the biomedical response, uh, de- deficiencies that I think had mainly uh, to do with a lack of coordination, and uh, between uh, between levels of government, uh, for example, across the the federal government, uh, and then between the public and private sectors. I think those are, have all been strengths in connection with. Uh, with the rapid development and testing and, and manufacturing and now distribution of, of the vaccine. And, and what th- I think the approach that has been taken by you know, Operation Warp Speed on the logistics side, uh, under my friend who I mentioned last time, uh, General Gus Perna, has been really brilliant because they didn't try to reinvent something. They used, they used already existing civilian uh, logistical and supply chains and, and are doing so uh, in, in a way that's highly organized that took a very unconventional approach to the problem of, of manufacturing the, this this uh, this vaccine at quantity before it was it was it was you know, f- fully tested, uh, and and I think it's going to pay off. Uh, these these are investments also that are that are paying off, uh, really across uh, across several you know, presidential administrations, of investing in the ability not only to rapidly vaccine prototype and to streamline the testing. Uh, but then also to be able to manufacture at scale. And, and so, if, I mean, if you go back to one of our earlier episodes, we we talked about kind of the, the three fundamental tasks of pandemic response. First of all, you know, detect it early and contain it near its source. Okay, that failed thanks to China. The second is to to mobilize the the, the biomedical response. There was a lot of friction and, and a lot of uh, obstacles to overcome there, especially in connection with supply chains that have been biased too much in favor of efficiency rather than Resiliency, uh, res- or resilience, and then, and then, uh, and then, third, it was innovate to, to biomedical innovation with therapies and, of course, with the with the vaccine. I think that th- that third area is going to receive kind of an A plus rating, whereas we we had deficiencies that were quite apparent in the, in the first two tasks.
1: But I it's I, I don't want to be left as the grumpy guy here, because <laughs> I absolutely agree with both of you. This is we we should celebrate what a miracle of modern. Uh, technology, uh, science. This is um, located in the much hated pharmaceutical companies. I, I might add, uh, the idea that within months we are already having a vaccine. It, it usually takes years, decades to produce vaccines, and many diseases don't have vaccines at all. John, I have, to,
2: I have to correct you. That the real uh, innovators here are relatively small biotech companies. Okay. Uh, the big pharma has been in part working in partnership with them. But we need to give credit where it's due. Uh, Biontech and, and Moderna are, are, are relatively fledgling uh, biotech firms that have taken huge risk. Uh, and here, I think you and I would agree, huge risk. Uh, and that is an illustration of the extraordinary importance of, of private enterprise in this kind of field. But uh, Big Pharma is in, in a supporting role here. The stars are the biotech companies.
1: Well, that, that makes the last point I wanted to make even more, <clears throat> more important. Uh, I think many politicians will be uh, jumping to price controls. I think uh, Joe Biden said it must be free. Uh, I hope that means he plans for the government to pay for it because these biotech companies should make oodles and oodles of money. Uh, If we think let's just give them one tenth of the GDP, they're gonna save the rest of us uh, because we want them around next time to do the same thing. Uh, But I do wanna channel the other Neil Ferguson who always finds a, a dark lining to every cloud something's going to go wrong along the way. Uh, the same governments who have been so incompetent so far surely are not going to roll out this vaccine with, with just uh, completely smoothly. I'm not sure what will go wrong. And, and last, vaccine is part of a strategy for reducing the spread of the disease. That's what it is. So we just you don't get to throw your masks away the day that they invent the vaccine. Uh, masks, social distancing, sensible precautions to stop the disease will be with us until it's essentially eradicated throughout the world. Uh, so it, it's, it's not going to be suddenly all over when the vaccine comes. But I didn't want to sound ungrateful. So uh, this really truly is uh, what's going to save us from what otherwise would be years and years of the annual COVID-19 wave.
2: Uh, Bill, to your question about the international ramifications, yeah. yes. actually, uh, if you take a fairly uh, sanguine view of, of the other vaccines that are being uh, developed, there ought to be enough to go around. I saw an estimate uh, just today that if you assume roughly 10 viable vaccines uh, are are produced, you can get to 8 to nine, even more than nine billion uh, doses uh, in the course of next year. There's obviously uh, the usual story of the rich countries bagging uh, the the vaccines uh, as they first become available, and uh, you can see that a lot of pre-orders have have been have been placed. In fact, the UK. Uh, is in the grip of a a minor controversy at the moment. It's actually placed a lot of orders, more actually than almost any country except the United States, but it didn't buy that much Moderna vaccine uh, in advance. But but I think that the truth is that unless all the other vaccine projects fail, there will be enough to go around. One interesting thing to watch, though, and HR, I'd love your thoughts on this, is that as uh, one might have expected, China is seeing a strategic opportunity here, recognizing that Uh, It will be the the rich countries that get served first by uh, Pfizer and and Moderna. And so China is going to roll out its vaccines to uh, poorer countries uh, uh, using the same kind of uh, propaganda uh, and and one imagines the same kind of political deals that have characterized much of China's recent influence operations. Uh, One Belt, One Road uh, is going to take take on a new character uh, as the Chinese deploy their vaccines. Vaccine strategically,
3: one yeah. shot. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that China will will look at this opportunistically or already has, and and uh, but I think you Neil, know, they're going to be set up for another backlash, right? I mean, if you think about how they went after, uh, you know, uh, increased influence through wolf Warrior diplomacy, it created a backlash. And you know, I just, I, mean, I, I, I don't do not want to to be one of these people that raises doubts about a vaccine. But I mean, if you're given a choice between a Chinese vaccine and, and, a, and an American or, or European manufactured vaccine, I mean, wh- which one are you going to choose? I think we're already seeing a little bit of that kind of backlash in 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 uh, in Brazil, you know, for for example, and some doubts about about the uh, the vaccine, and of course the, the hastily. Uh, developed uh, vaccine in Russia seems to be very problematic as well. So I think, you know, I think they could be setting themselves up for a backlash. There's deep skepticism now about anything the Chinese Communist Party does, and I think with good cause.
1: But if China wants, come on, guys, if China wants to save the third world from COVID and it can do it and we're not willing to do it, well, good for China. And if they get some propaganda victory out of it, well, if we don't like that, we could go ship uh, stuff to the third world. No,
3: I I agree. I mean, if that's right, if it if it works, it works. But hey, I I think also we ought to recognize that that we are still the leading donor in support, uh, medical support to to developing economies, including we are already underwriting the cost for the future vaccine in developing economies. And I don't know what the exact statistics are. Uh, but they're significant and and we've increased those donations during the pandemic so you know it's very fashionable these days to say like the U.S. has vacated you know its role as as an international leader it's just really not borne out by the facts.
1: Now a national international thing comes um, when suppose that the U.S. has uh, largely gotten rid of it here but it's still surging in the Middle East and Africa and Latin America then we're not gonna wanna let people fly here from those countries. Um, So that's gonna be uh, the issue. Those countries become reservoirs for disease that we gotta think about somehow and that's gonna lead to a lot of tension.
0: Let's look a little uh, closer to home for a second and uh, the question of COVID relief which remains stalled in Congress. Uh, John Cochran, you were The Economist had on the show. What should our intrepid Congress be doing to help the economy in the way of relief?
1: Uh, Well, this needs competent public health. Uh, What our Congress knows how to do is print money and throw it out windows. And unfortunately, what I'm afraid is we're gonna head into the winter. uh, And uh, certainly what I hear out of the new administration and their experts, they have a combination of scientific experts who believe that every human life is infinitely valuable. And so uh, they they wanna lock down the economy and they have, their economists tend to be of the Keynesian sort who think that the, uh, what keeps economies going is printing up money and throwing it out the window. Uh, so the natural policy response will be a quite severe economic lockdown uh, combined with uh, printing up lots of money, uh, send it to every American to pay their bills and order stuff on Amazon. And then stuff miraculously comes to the front door from Amazon from where we do not know. Uh, that's how it works for politicians. It works for policy walks. Why can't it work that way for everybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I suspect that's, the, that's going to be the natural inclination. Uh, there are smarter things to do to keep an economy going other than uh, throw money out the window. In fact, the, the economy is, uh, is, is recovering fairly well, except for those sectors, which are of course uh, not going to be doing well because they, you know, like airlines and travel and hotels and so forth.
2: There is one obvious vulnerable spot, John, though, isn't there? And that is that, that state governments are having to lay people off uh, because uh, they have balanced budget rules. And under the conditions of, of this year, that that they're really unable to sustain those rules without significant layoffs. I think if I were in Washington DC right now, I'd be pushing uh, for a lame duck session bill that at least tried to take some of the heat off uh, those uh, badly, badly stressed uh, state governments, because otherwise you are going to see uh, a significant uptick in in unemployment. And let's face it, the recovery that was uh, for a time looking V-shaped. Uh, turned out to be more like the reverse square root or my giant tortoise. Uh, unfortunately, I think what's happened is that the uh, the short run arguments uh, for fiscal support for the economy in this final phase of of the year have uh, have really ran af- run afoul of politics. And I'm still not clear from what I hear whether there is any deal to be done in the lame duck session. Uh, I actually think it's more, uh, more needed now than it will be uh, after Joe Biden is sworn in uh, and there's a danger that that we're gonna be arguing about fiscal policies, fiscal stimulus next year when it won't be needed because the vaccine is gonna allow us to get back much more rapidly than I think people realize to normal. So, I mean, at the risk of, uh, of saying something rather unhooverish, I actually think some fiscal relief in the lame duck session would be a good idea. So
1: let, let me, yeah, uh, this is a good point um, and I was being too negative. Uh, you need fiscal relief where it's needed to keep things going. Um, and that's dif- different. You need, uh, uh, that's the insurance function, if you will, uh, of relief, as opposed to the general stimulus view that if you just spend money, that's what keeps the economy going, which is what I was uh, doubtful about. Uh, state governments, so just this morning to Wall Street Journal, I used to believe that too, but apparently state governments are doing quite well because income tax, state governments are mostly reliant on the income tax. The income tax is paid by wealthy people who work on Zoom like us. <laughs> uh, and so the combination of the unemployment benefits, the $600 are taxed. So in fact, the same things that's keeping personal consumption expenditures going is keeping state uh, states going who are relying on income tax. Uh, local governments who rely on sales tax, uh, I saw the San Francisco numbers, they're just uh, down the toilet. Uh, now, the problem is how do you uh, keep current expenditures going without bailing out past debts? Uh, and that is exactly what Washington is fighting about. You take a city like Chicago or a state like Illinois, you want to help them to keep the police and the cops and the nurses and, and the rest of it going, but you don't want to uh, throw money down the rat hole of their public pensions. And uh, how, you, how you square that circle I think is, is difficult. Uh, I would rather see um, carefully targeted, wisely managed uh, relief for private businesses and people who are going to be impacted by the second lockdown. Uh, The extent to which our government's capable of doing that sort of thing is is the open question.
0: Okay, then the question for you, and I'm going to use a word here that's going to get me hate mail, the president-elect. What should the president-elect be doing right now in terms of making phone calls and working the lines and talking to people? And what does the president-elect do come January the 20th when it's his job?
3: Well, you know, Bill, if I could just plug our our report, preparing for the next pandemic or preparing for the next wave of this pandemic, uh, I, I think our team did a really great job. And this was a combination of, 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 uh, of graduate students and undergraduates. You know, and I mentioned before, all of us were just kind of disappointed about how our response to a pandemic became a partisan political issue. Right. It shouldn't be. And so. We endeavored to to interview those who were at critical points in the in the, in the response uh, to this pandemic, and to to learn what we could, and and to condense that into 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 a, into a, st- a study. Uh, what I what I think is positive about this study as well is that we, we partnered with people across departments and agencies, in, in state and and uh, local and the federal government, as well as congressional staffs that are working on pandemic-related legislation. So. I think that report, which is up on the Hoover website is worth taking a look at. And I hope uh, you know, I hope that the, uh, the Biden administration team is looking at it as well. Okay. I, uh, I'm gonna be grumpy about what you just said.
1: First of all, uh, I believe that Joe Biden has won the election but he is not the president elect. There is no clause of the constitution in which the Associated Press designates the new president. He becomes the president elect when the electoral college votes him president elect and that is certified. He is the presumptive winner. He is whatever you want to call him. He is not yet the pre- president-elect.
3: Sorry, I've been listening to too much NPR, and and they're just bugging <laughs> me on this. Well, John, point. you know we are we are we are into making predictions, though, right? In this on Goodfellows, and I think, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine a, a different outcome well, yeah, at, at this stage. At this stage, I
1: I completely agree with that. But his <laughs> title, his formal title, his you can call him presumptive. You can call him anointed by the press. He is not yet the president-elect, and just point, a little point, bit of con- economy of words, a- John. Economy of words. <laughs> but that's important. That's important to the point I wanted to you know, what she should be doing. I think we're focused way too much on presidents and way too much on presidents elect. This is largely a function of state and local government. Uh, all the president elect could do anyway is issue statements uh, and, and how much more tweeting do, by politicians do we need? What he can do is appoint a good team. What a president-elect has to do is get a good team in place so that they're ready to go and avoid most 100 days or 100 days of chaos. So that when he actually is in charge in January 21, he's ready to take over. And he can encourage our current president to do his job. <laughs> our current president uh, is, is spending time on other things than running the pandemic. Uh, our current president should be doing his job with trying to get us uh, through the winter. It is not Joe Biden's job. And certainly not to whine and whinge on Twitter about what Trump should be doing differently.
2: Neil, well, he has, of course, announced his uh, COVID nineteen uh, task force team, and I uh, don't myself feel uh, uh, much that there that, that to complain about there. Uh, uh, that that's part of the transition uh, that you'd expect to be underway already. Uh, under these circumstances, I think what's fascinating about the politics of this moment is that uh, there's still uncertainty about whether or not uh, the Republicans will retain control of the Senate. And that that rather circumscribes uh, what Joe Biden can visualize doing uh, if indeed he becomes president-elect and if indeed he is uh, inaugurated. Uh, because if uh, the Georgia... Uh, runoffs uh, go Mitch McConnell's way, even if only one of them goes the Republicans way, then Mitch McConnell remains master of the Senate. And that greatly narrows down uh, what Joe Biden's going to be able to do uh, as, as president. And I, I think it's worth reflecting on that. Uh, the the key thing about uh, the, the Biden administration's response to the pandemic is that by the time he's sworn in, I suspect this third wave uh, will have crested. Uh, It will have crested partly uh, because of uh, restrictions uh, imposed uh, at the state and local level and partly because of behavioral adaptation. Uh, Vaccination will be underway by Inauguration Day. And as I've already said, it's going to proceed pretty rapidly during the first few months of the next administration. Uh, So the oddity here for me is that uh, the, the Biden administration will come into office uh, when really COVID-19 is beginning to recede, uh, the crisis is going to actually be uh, be passing, and the economics. Uh, I, I suspect, will, will be quite positive, even without the kind of fiscal stimulus that the de- Democrats planned to do with their blue wave. So there are lots of ironies here, which, which I think um, are not entirely uh, perceived by some commentators. Uh, ultimately, COVID-19 is not going to be Joe Biden's biggest problem, uh, because for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of which is extraordinary innovation by biotech companies, the problem's gonna be solved within just a few months of his being sworn in.
1: But, but Neil, so the Senate doesn't have that much to do with anything involving COVID policy, I and mean, anything takes months to get through the Senate anyway. So while I agree with you that this is the most important question for what happens for the next four years, COVID policy is gonna be executive orders uh, in any case, perhaps some more money from the Senate in late spring, perhaps not. I think I'm going to agree, though, with the sense of what you're saying, which is what Joe Biden should do is what he will do is sit back and take credit for the coming of spring and don't do that much.
2: <laughs> and the success of, of the vaccines. Yeah, but, but my coming point, of spring, my point, that, John, that it will pass just anyway. A- the, the great fiscal expansion that the Democrats plan to do uh, if they won a, a sweep uh, is probably unnecessary, and they'll probably get a pretty good economic uh, year next year without that, uh, that Keynesian policy that they were so hell-bent on enacting. And that's, that's the irony, that you actually need the fiscal uh, support for the economy now. You're not really going to need it next year.
1: Well, um, that's uh, fiscal expansion in Democrats' hands is always an answer looking for a question. And when COVID no longer becomes the question, don't worry, uh, they'll have many more questions to which it is the answer. <laughs>
0: A question for the three of you. Um, Here we are a nation that is dealing with a health crisis, our third wave, as Neil has pointed out. Uh, We have a transfer of power that's going to play out for the next two months, probably quite choppily, if you will. Uh, This would seem an opportune time for one of the bad actors on the world stage to do something mischievous. Um, To be predictive here, what do you think the chances are that something is going to happen around the world? Uh, Someone's going to take advantage of this rather awkward moment for the United
2: States of America. But the media think it's actually Donald Trump is going to do the drastic things of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan or possibly Iraq. Well, yeah. So let, let's not rule that uh, scenario out. Uh, I'll, I'll 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 suggest here that. That the the Chinese are not going to make any bold moves uh, during this period of time because they want to see what they can get for free uh, from a Biden administration. So Mm -hmm. I don't expect any hasty moves by Xi Jinping. Uh, Rather, what they're hoping, as I argued in my uh, Bloomberg opinion column this weekend, is that they can get detente on the cheap, that uh, the Biden administration will take off the tariffs and it'll take off the, the pressure on Huawei in return for, what, a pledge to be carbon neutral by 2060. I mean, that's an easy pledge for Xi Jinping to make. Uh, I, I think similarly from the vantage point of, uh, of President Putin, there's no real urgency for risk-taking at this point. You just sit back and, and wait for actually uh, any, uh, any windfalls that may come from, uh, from a rather more conciliatory uh, 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 Biden administration uh, what do you think, HR? Is there some little yeah, crisis I, coming? I,
3: I agree with that. I think this also applies to Iran. The same observation you made about uh, about about China. I think they're going to wait to see what they can get from a Biden administration to see if they'll try to enter back into a, a weak agreement that that gives them sanctions relief and uh, and, and you know, associated with the old Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and then I, I think, though, the, the wild card might be North Korea, right? Because North Korea you know, they, has this playbook right, that they use, which is to, to create a, a provocation like a nuclear Attention test. Attention to like us. <laughs> and then, right, and then, and, then, and then basically use that as a way to get us to offer to talk to them and to give them big payoffs in the process. And, and so typically those provocations happen really uh, before inauguration time. And, and, uh, and so I, I think that's a possibility.
2: Personally, if I were a tin pot dictator, I'd wait till Donald Trump was out the White House before doing anything of that kind. Uh, And that's why actually, I think the interregnum is going to be quite quiet geopolitically, unless President Trump himself tries to do something drastic. You guys
1: are, are wonderful, you've become economists because you look at what people's interests are and you predict their behavior and you're exactly right. Everybody's interest is, is to bet that they can get something out of Biden without causing it trouble. I don't see exactly why we're going to have a, a non-smooth transfer of power. Uh, from what I can tell, by the time Trump finally realizes he's lost the election, he'll go around to say it's over and all of the offices will already be empty because everyone <laughs> has left. Uh, um, that's the reason our wonderful constitution gives a whole month for this process. So there's all this hyperventilating on the left. We need to get this going. You know, you just after the Electoral College, you still have over a month to do all your transition stuff. Uh, every other country in the world, you know, you have 24 hours. Uh, it'll be fine. The one point of contention that I, I'm, I'd like to bring up for you guys uh, that may early in the Biden administration may come up is that the one plant in the world that knows how to make sub. Ten nanometer semiconductors is located in Taiwan. Uh, we have just said Huawei can't have them. Uh, is this the same as uh, as an oil embargo on uh, Japan in 1939? It has occurred to Chinese people. Hmm. We can't. The U.S. won't let us have uh, semiconductors that are made in Taiwan. Gee, how could we get that semiconductor plant? Uh, I, I, I think that may be a, a Giant mistake. Uh, That's a difficult question on our part. And uh, trying to enforce that embargo may cause more trouble soon uh, than we think.
2: Well, all stories begin and end with Taiwan. If Taiwan was the country that got COVID 19 most right, uh, it's also going to be the most interesting strategic focal point for U.S.-China relations next year. Uh, but my sense is that, again, the Chinese are not going to risk anything like uh, an amphibious invasion. Uh, they might put a economic pressure on, but I think first they'll wait and see what they can get from the Biden administration for free. And they might very well get relaxation of those Commerce Department regulations. That wouldn't surprise me.
3: Yeah, and I, I agree with that, Neil. And then I would just say, what are we not thinking about? Maybe what we're not thinking about is what others, maybe even our friends might do, right? So I think as we look at this period of time and the news that just came out a couple of weeks ago that Iran is enriching uh, uranium far beyond what was agreed to under the JCPOA, that they might be in a dash uh, toward a threshold nuclear capability, I think a, a fair question to ask is, does the does the Israeli government think that this is a window of opportunity to do something uh, under a Trump administration before a Biden administration comes in, I would say that's you know or, Iran might still be a wild card, but not necessarily what based on what we are going to do about it, but what others might do about it.
1: So now you guys,
3: that this is the second,
1: the first strategic theory is wait and see what Biden does, but the second strategic theory is right now put some facts on the ground, and a fact on the ground would be a nuclear breakout for Iran, and then hmm, what are you going to do about it? We got nukes. Uh, That's an entirely logical thing for them to do.
0: Okay, gentlemen, we're coming up against our uh, deadline here. Uh, A final question for you. i would like to go around the horn here. We're not doing a show next week. We're giving you Thanksgiving off. Uh, So here's the question. Come this time next week, next Thursday, when you're gathering with your families or some downsized version of your families, what are you giving thanks for? And John Cochran, as you've been exceedingly grumpy on this podcast, I'll let you go first or last, maybe last to give you time to think this. HR, you're the optimist. You go first. What are you going to give thanks for next week?
3: Well, I'm going to give thanks for our servicemen and women who are fighting overseas to keep us safe. And I'm going to give thanks to our, to our healthcare workers here, which we started talking about in the beginning of the show. Those who, who are willing to serve and to make sacrifices uh, for their fellow Americans and for humanity, I think will be foremost on, on my mind.
2: Neil? Oh, I'll give thanks for the fact that my family's thus far come through this crisis uh, healthy uh, and safe. And a little sub-thanks to, uh, to Zoom, uh, because it's enabled me to remain in touch with my older children and my mother on the other side of the Atlantic. I shudder to think what this would all have been like if we hadn't been able to see one another uh, as we spoke. It would have been tough uh, to do 2020 just with the telephone and even tougher uh, to do it just by writing letters as my grandfathers had to when they were uh, in the armed forces during the, the world war. So that's what I'll be giving thanks for.
0: Okay. Finally, the grumpy economist, John, either say something nice or just tell us what you're going to have on Thanksgiving.
1: Oh, no. I've, uh, <laughs> uh, we won't go to food. I'm always very thankful on Thanksgiving. Uh, one of my commentators on my blog pointed out that uh the death rate from COVID now puts us at the same death rate we had in 2006. Why? Because among many other wonders of America and the world is that the natural death rate has just been declining over time and continues to do so. So I I give thanks for truth, justice in the American way, or let me put it, uh, the creaky institutions of American democracy, which uh, uh, are much maligned, but boy, did they come through once again. Uh, those, those dead white men in the 1790s came up with something remarkable and, uh, they had no idea how wealthy, how prosperous, how healthy we would all be. Uh, let's give thanks for it and and hope it lasts another year.
0: Well put. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. As I mentioned, we will not be doing a, a episode next week. So, um, By all means, have a very pleasant Thanksgiving. Uh, Stay safe uh, if you're going to be traveling. Uh, We will be back the week after Thanksgiving, though, with a new show, new conversation. On behalf of Hoover's good fellows, the predictive Neil Ferguson, the optimistic H.R. McMaster, the at times grumpy John Cochran, though I see him smiling, so he's not that grumpy of a fellow, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon, and have a great Thanksgiving.